Hey there, Nationals fans, and welcome to episode five of the Believe in Nationals podcast with me, your host, Blake Finney. Apologies for the lack of podcast last week. Something came up that meant I wasn't able to record on Sunday or Monday, but we're back this week and I even have a guest on with me, so it's not just me and my dulcet tones. Joining me in a little bit is Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post as we discuss some of the key storylines for the Nationals, including how the team's young core is faring, their activity on the waiver wire, and an interesting chat about player development. But before we get to that, just a quick recap of what the Nationals have done since our last podcast. The week before last, the Nationals played the Cubs in a pretty nondescript series loss, even though they were right there in the late innings of a lot of those games. Then they flew out west to take on the Padres and Mariners, both of whom the Nationals managed to salvage a series split with, thanks to Josh Hader's ninth-inning meltdowns in San Diego and Ildemaro Vargas's ninth-inning go-ahead home run in Seattle. The Nats then finished off the week with a three-game series with the Reds, a series which featured the debut of top-pitching prospect Cade Cavalli, who started the series opener. It was another series defeat for Washington, who were denied by TJ Friedel playing like prime Willie Mays, and hard-hit balls just seemingly finding gloves at an absurd rate. In the series finale, though, the Nationals finally snapped their 43-game streak of no-winning decisions by a starting pitcher, the longest such streak in modern Major League history. And of all pitchers to break that run, it was Patrick Corbin, the major league leader in losses and by far and away the highest ERA among qualified pitchers in the league. Because baseball always has a way of doing these things. To help break it down, both with the recent debuts for the Nationals and the bigger picture for the franchise as a whole, here's our chat with Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. Now joining me on the podcast is Nationals beat reporter for the Washington Post, Jesse Doherty. How are you doing today, Jesse? Good, man. How are you? It's been all good. Uh, it's been hectic and there's a lot going on with the Nationals, but obviously it's been almost four weeks since the trade deadline now and the Nationals trade in one so and Josh Bell. So now that things have settled down a little bit and we're starting to see how things are playing out, what are some of your impressions of this post-trade deadline Nationals team? It's a good question. It's something I think about a lot. Like, what what is this team now? What is its identity? What is the actual direction of, you know, what can solidly be called a rebuild now, I think are all major questions. I, I think sort of my, my attention goes to the farm system and my attention goes naturally to the younger players and the majors, I think, because the, the weird thing with the Nationals this whole season, even pre-trade deadline, has been this balance of as writers and as fans, I think, wanting to sort of see the future, but also sort of having the, that vision be, be sort of muddied a bit by a lot of these sort of stopgap veterans, these Band-Aid players, guys who I've interacted with and, and have enjoyed covering to some degree and, and guys that fans have interacted with on their TV night tonight, but we kind of know in the back of our heads or the front of our minds, frankly, that they're not going to be here. That they're not going to be part of this picture in a year, two years, three years when it, you know, in theory starts to get a bit sunnier. So I think that those feelings still exist. I think it's a bit clearer now who's going to be around and who's not and, and what maybe some of the holes are going to be. I feel from an objective standpoint that, I'm encouraged by the steps that are being taken from purely a personnel standpoint. I, I cannot say that coaching or the development or the technology or all these things or the long-term vision for roster building is in the right place necessarily. But I think purely from the amount of talent in the system and the, on the major league roster has improved uh, since August 2nd. So, yeah, I mean, how much time we got? We probably could talk about that question alone for, you know, five hours here if we, if we want it. But I don't know if anyone wants to listen to that. Like you say, you can kind of see that core emerging, especially up the middle when you've got Ruiz, Garcia, Abrams, you've got some of the other guys coming through. So kind of the, the overarching question based on what we've seen so far, do you think they're closer to competing now than before the trade deadline? Or are we still not going to know potentially until the ownership change this offseason? Yeah, I'd say probably the latter, but something I think about a lot and something that 
something that I've been trying to parse in my head, frankly, since the deadline is, is the team better off now than it was on August 1st, which is when it still employed Juan Soto? And is the team better off now than if Soto had taken a 15-year deal? I think both those questions are fair to ask. I think the first one's a little bit more benign. The second one might get some tomatoes thrown at you if you really want to explore it, because I know I know why people want Juan Soto on this team. I, I understand the value of a superstar and a superstar of his talent. I do think there's an argument to make that if you simulate it the next 10 years with what the players nationals got in the trade and with Juan Soto alone, I don't know. It's interesting, right? I mean, I think I think there's something to be said there. So that would play into the argument of Mike, Mike Rizzo's argument that the team is better and closer to competing now than it was before the trade deadline. Now, the caveat there is that the team has to also take the necessary steps from here forward. It has to develop the players it received. Ownership, whoever that is, has to spend in the right ways. A lot went right to win in 19. A lot also went right to compete from 12 to 19. These are not necessarily the products of one trade or four prospects or three of those four prospects turning into major leaguers. It's going to be a lot more than that. Some draft picks have to hit, develop a sixth round player, sixth round pick into a major leaguer, just throwing it out there. You know, just like they they have to find a waiver claim here who's going to be a six-year contributor. And whether that's as a middle reliever or as a starting left fielder or whatever it may be, these are what what winning teams do. Uh, That's what, you know, you think of the Dodgers and Justin Turner and Max Muncie are reclamation projects that they turn into star players. And it's not for them. It's not just Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw and Walker Bueller. It's those guys on the margins who have helped you win. I think the Nationals have to prove again, or maybe even for the first time in some cases, that they're capable of building in ways that modern winners are built. And right now, I think there's there's reason to be skeptical of that, that they are capable of doing that. But the foundation and what's there to start and what's at square one is certainly more encouraging, I think, than than what was there before the Soto trade, even if Juan Soto's not in the picture anymore. I think that's fair. And as I kind of alluded to, I think what happens this offseason, both from an ownership perspective and then whether ownership are going to come in and kind of bring their own regime is kind of more important to whether they have one so or not on the roster. But one of those players that they have sort of developed, he was a first round pick, but uh, Kate Cavalli made his debut against the Reds on Friday. Four and a third innings allowed seven runs on six hits and two walks, six strikeouts. Uh, fastball ran up to 98 miles an hour, averaged 95.6. There was flashes of good, but there were also signs of why he was still in the minors up until this point and not up in the majors earlier this season. So what did you think of his debut? Do you think there's enough to be optimistic about, even if the results themselves weren't particularly great? Yeah, I think there's a reason to be optimistic. I mean, I think it's maybe expectations or evaluation has been scaled down too far by the Nationals' misses or the Nationals' misfortune in the draft. But frankly, the fact that the debut happened is a big deal. I think you look at since 2017, they've picked four pitchers in the first round, and one of them has made a start in the major leagues, and that's Kay Cavalli. And the others being Seth Romero, Mason Denneberg, and Jackson Rutledge are, you know, are either in the system still or have dealt with injuries or are, you know, are toiling in the minors and, and all those things. So Cade ascending and being healthy and and now being at the stage where he can learn in the majors and develop in the highest level and and take his lumps, but also hopefully take steps in the right direction if you're the Nationals. Like that's a, that, that's no small deal, I think, given the recent track record from both the health standpoint and a draft and a scouting standpoint in the draft. And then, you know, as far as the numbers, like that seven room runs is ugly, but I think that the defense is better. It's a, it's a totally different game. I think there's some bad luck there. You know, he, he hits a ground double play ball himself that turns into an infield single and you know Luis Garcia doesn't turn double play and Luke Floyd doesn't knock down a ball first and probably he should either catch or not let get past him 
you know, if it's four runs and five innings and it's a little different, but next start could be a shutout. And then the next start after that could be another five runs. So it's, I think it can be a bit before he's a stable, you know, we know what, you know, what you're getting every five days, frankly, the pitchers who, you know, what you're getting every five days, they're in terms of positive outcomes is that's they're few and far between. Those are all-stars, right? Those are, those are Cy Young candidates. The guys that you really can count on like clockwork to just produce and, be effective starting and start out like that's what you hope out of a first round pick and a top prospect but that doesn't happen in the first you know season um especially this really has happened in the first outing or first month so i think there's gonna be growing pains it's gonna be hard for people to swallow i could see a similar arc to josiah gray where this was his first full season and we've seen some ups and downs cra spiked to five at some point a lot of home runs for him obviously cavalli doesn't get up the long ball that way but i think just profile wise they're they're kind of similar pitchers and that they they throw mid to you know mid 90s fastballs and Valley hopefully can stabilize his velocity and keep it higher than that. But I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of reasons to like it. And uh, obviously for the reasons you point out to be a bit skeptical. And But when you strike out 11 guys in the second to last minor league outing and, and strike out, you know, seven guys in the first, you know, three innings or so, like it doesn't feel like there's a lot more for you to do at that level. You just need to come up and figure it out in the major. So I, I, I was okay with the move. I think it was the right time, maybe get a little bit of fan excitement there as well. Obviously shouldn't be a factor, but is in these kind of things. And yeah, there's probably enough there and probably enough that working at the major league level is the next best step especially with off-speed stuff where you're coming up against guys in the minors who are pretty experienced there but maybe not seeing that quality of off-speed stuff every week so if you can then work against that against major league competition I think that's uh, that's the ticket especially the secondary stuff because I think we saw the curveball again that was one of those that was very hit and miss there was some good stuff in there with uh, three strikeouts on the curveball but you also hit two batters with it and gave up some pretty loud contact with that as well so one of the other young players that we've uh, we've got to see in the last couple of weeks we've had cj abrams recalled on the 15th of august he's also been struggling a little bit hitting 136 no extra base hits no walks 12 strikeouts in 12 games uh in fairness, there's been a lot of lefties and lefty breaking balls, which obviously a massive step up in the in the majors, but he has looked a little bit overmatched. On the bright side, there's been some solid defense, which uh, a big upgrade on Garcia at shortstop at the very least. Again, still way too early to judge how he's going to be long term, but is the start a little concerning in terms of how overmatched he's looked at times? Sorry to the listeners, you can hear my cat is meowing behind me. Yeah, I think, uh, frankly, I think he, he was accelerated by the fact that he replaced Tatis earlier this season. I think that if that never happens and he spends the year in AAA, unless he's lighting the world on fire down there, there's, there's a parallel universe or parallel situation here in which he's a top prospect still. He comes over, he spends the last month of the year in Rochester, he hits pretty well, and then next spring the Nationals consider bringing him up for opening day. And I think our perception of him would be a lot different if that were the case because he's 21. And one thing that's happened in Washington over the last five, six years for obvious reasons and because of obvious players is that I think everyone's been a bit spoiled in terms of what top prospects do at certain ages. You know, Bryce Harper and Juan Soto are not the norm. They are MVP candidates, MVP players. Um, some of one of them was a two-time winner. Where when they came up at 19 years old, that was a bit different than a lot of people. And I think Carter Keboom and Luis Garcia and maybe now C.J. Abrams are are proof that it's not that easy just to come up at such a young age when you could still be in college and produce. And with Abrams, I think he does look overmatched by the pitching. I think the play discipline does concern me. I think it it can be learned. I think some of that is natural and just you know part of sort of what you see at the plate and how you approach it, but certainly it can be adjusted. But yeah, I think that you said it perfectly. I mean, no walks, no extra base hits. That's, that's not what you want, right? That's uh, 
one of them helps your slugging percentage, one of them helps your own base percentage. And, you know, when both of those are not good, uh, you're not being productive. So I think that there's a lot to, a lot of improvement to make there. I think the defense is positive and that he gets a lot of balls that weren't being touched before, whether between Nacias Escobar or Luis Garcia, just it's a different level of range uh, that could really help the pitching staff. And that's, that, that's no small thing. And, but offensively, it's been disappointing. But I, I think the context that's necessary to know is that I've even heard from some people in the organization who have said like, there's, you know, I don't know if he should even be here necessarily, but the fact that he spent two months, three months, whatever, with Padres earlier in the year, like then it, everything gets shifted and he's now a big leaguer. He should be up. He was already up with the Padres. So why would we have him take a step back? I think that those were decisions that were made for obvious reasons, and, but um, we're seeing it sort of negatively affect his performance right now. But I, I don't know if it's bad long-term and he could also benefit from being here and learning and getting around the major league coaches and failing at this level. Yeah, I don't think it's anything to be concerned about long-term just yet. But one thing I have thought about, could we see a scenario where the Nationals maybe bring in like a bridge shortstop in free agency, let Abrams go back down to AAA to start next season, potentially? I think it's a good question. I think optically, I, I don't see that just because I think they would have that would be sort of like throwing water on their excitement or their confidence in the kid. And I think like it's one thing when you do that, maybe it's somebody you brought up to the system and was a first round pick or something. It's another thing to do it when it's someone you bring in a major trade. And I don't know. I think it makes sense. I think a more likely scenario is there's an Ildemaro Vargas type is in the on the roster next year who's more of a backup and could you know could play there if in emergency or could back up or and you know spot start for a couple of days if Abrams needed a rest i don't know if we'll see a full-time starter band-aid or bridge starter there but i i don't hate the idea i just don't know if they would do that i think you say that's what you might think initially but i also kind of come back to or earlier this year as well where they essentially did that with luis garcia even though he kind of got his feet wet in 2020 and 2021 they still brought back alcides escobar to be the shortstop uh had cesar hernandez at second base so it's interesting and maybe it maybe it depends on who the front office is and whether they want to keep him up as well because like I said, it, it's it's not necessarily doing him any good to be completely overmatched. Is is he doing enough to like actually benefit his development where he's not just getting his confidence killed, I guess? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a great point. And one of the other trends that we've seen since the trade deadline, uh, the Nationals continue to be active on the waiver wire, which they've obviously been since last year's trade deadline. Uh, they've made three claims since this year's. That's one of the things you get when you're afforded first shot on the waiver wire when you have the worst record. Uh, they've claimed Alex Cole from the Guardians, Jake McGee from the Brewers, Tommy Romero from the Rays. And earlier this season, they claimed Corey Abbott from the Giants and Josh Palacios from the Blue Jays. They've obviously passed on a few players too, like Denilson Lamette and Fran Mill Reyes. But do you think they've done a fairly good job on waivers to this point? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I, I like it as a strategy. I think any rebuilding team should spare a few 40-man spots for this sort of strategy. I think it can't hurt. I think the, the best example that we've seen so far, and it's a small sample, is that Hunter Harvey could be a potential reliever for their future. And, uh, you know, he was a waiver claim in the offseason and during camp, and he came in and he, you know, sim- true to sort of how he's been, he was injured early on and took a long stint on the IL. But he's, since he's come back, they've sort of shifted his mechanics around and they found something. And that's the success story. The other side of it, you know, is – you know, everyone works out. I mean, even Jake McGee the other night gets lit up against the Reds, and there's going to be other waiver claims. Francisco Perez has really struggled, and Rahelio Armentero is going back a couple of years, never even appeared in the majors and dealt with injuries, and that was another waiver claim, and Patrick Murphy and Mike Ford. So I think you're throwing up against the wall. Something might stick. And right now, the Nationals, you know, waiver claims is a way to get players. You know, you don't have to compete with other teams in free agency. 
Uh, you don't have to draft them. You don't have to do a ton of, you know, coaxing. You just have to decide you want that player. And if you're scouting and your analytics and everything lines up, I think it makes sense. And, you know, with the Rays, you can make the joke that, you know, the 41st best player on the Rays is probably a hell of a lot better than the 40, 40th best player on the Nationals right now, right? So that's just, that's probably just good math. And of course, you wonder with a team like that, they're so good at talent acquisition and development that what did they see that they don't want the guy anymore? That's something that's worth asking uh, because, you know, they're, they're as good as anyone at identifying, you know, developable skills and, projectionable sort of tools and they didn't see that with Romero obviously but but also they have roster crunch because they're contending so they you know with both Alex Call and Tommy Romero you look at the minor league numbers and you say like why wouldn't they keep these guys around and the reality is as the Nationals might have had to do in the past like when you're contending down the stretch and you need a player off your you know minor league system and you need to bring a guy off the 60-day IL like you're going to have these roster crunches where you maybe make decisions where you don't want to have you don't want to do it but you have to get get rid of a guy like Call who's crushing the ball in triple A you get rid of a guy like Romero who's been a solid starter for you in the minors so I think the Nationals you know when you're in position to reap the benefits of that like you said with the first spot you can have any anyone you want and you have to take advantage of that and i think so far they've done it and we'll see what the results are and it's also worth remembering and i know you know this but like the results don't have to be good because what you gave up was not it's not much, if anything at all. It was maybe roster spots somebody else, or in some cases, guys go to the 60-day and they don't even you don't even swap a player out. So I think it's prudent to keep keep trying, and, and we'll see what comes of it for sure. Like you say, you don't have to hit on everyone if they come out of this season and Hunt Harvey's the one who looks like a potential. Even if he ends up as like a middle reliever long term, that's still pretty valuable uh, moving forward. I think what's interesting to me is they've kind of been going for these younger guys who have done really well in the minor leagues, who have a lot of control, as opposed to some of these guys, like I mentioned, like Denilson Lamette, Framil Reyes, who have less control, more major league track record, who potentially could be trade pieces rather than, like I said, they've been going for the younger guys with more control. Do you think that's something that they've kind of made a point of rather than, like I said, trying to acquire guys to maybe try and build them up and then trade them in a year or so? Yeah, I think it's been the focus more to get players that can stick around as depth rather than like going for somebody who could be a big contributor. I mean, frankly, like you could make the case they should do both, right? Like, why not bring in Alex Call and a guy like Fernando Reyes if you can? Or why not bring in Tommy Romero and then someone like Lamette if you can? Because on one hand, like you said, you might get, you know, you get a reclamation project that could turn it around next year and be a deadline chip. And then you also get a depth guy for five to six years who ends up being part of the next contender as a fourth outfielder or a swingman in the bullpen or a triple A pitcher who's going back and forth, um, whatever it may be. So, I mean, I think there's there's sort of prudence to both approaches. I think what we've seen so far, aside from Jake McGee, who was really just to fill the necessity and or the need rather for a for a left-handed reliever, we've seen the approach of going for the sort of team control, guys with options, roster flexibility, rather than trying to sort of, you know, catch lightning in a bottle with someone like Framil Reyes and see if he can hit 20 homers in the first half next year and then, uh, and then flip him at the deadline. I, I, I think that might be a a good thing to do as well. And they're not the last two players who will be available. It was interesting. They were both available though, around when the nationals claimed McGee and call because they could have also done that. I, I know they, I know they took a look at Lamette. I, I don't quite know as much about the thought process with Reyes. If there even was consideration there, but uh, I think, you know, for me, claims are better than no claims, but you could also make better ones. So it's worth sort of looking at sort of how they've done and if that strategy is going to be sound, you know, in, in the next year or so. I do. Um, I, I think Lamette, you could kind of make the case that maybe there wasn't a spot for him and they, they had some of the other guys that they wanted to look at, especially pitching wise, but especially with their outfield situation currently where you're kind of playing Manasis a bit out of position. Obviously, he's been fantastic, but you definitely had a spot for Reyes on the uh, in the outfield, but it's a it's a long shot and like you say the the most likely outcome is probably he still hits like 220 hits a few home runs and no one really wants him so maybe it is nitpicking i was gonna say the nets weren't making waiver claims two years ago so you know i think 
as from a fan or writer's expectation on the outside, it's like, you're not going to get everything at once, right? <laughs> not every kind of creative roster building move or any kind of innovative thinking all at once. And I think to see it even taking root or, you know, taking off as a new strategy is, is a very positive thing, but it's going to take time for them to sort of really attack this from all angles aside from the traditional way, which was we're going to draft guys and then we're going to sign major league free agents. And that was sort of how they built their roster, but we're going to see soon and trades, you know, I, I should, I should add in there um, trades at the deadline too, but we're going to see now the different ways in which they have to attack it because, you know, the resources might not be the same. And also this sort of position of the franchises in a way they haven't been since 2009, 2010, when sort of these strategies were a lot different and there was a lot of different modes of thinking across the league. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that takes, how that takes shape in the coming years. Uh, and someone that the Nats actually lost on waivers earlier this season was Austin Voth, claimed by the Orioles. And he has a 2.72 ERA in 16 appearances, 12 of which are starts, after putting up a 10.13 ERA with the Nationals earlier this season. It's a particularly interesting one because his strikeout and walk rates are fairly similar. The hard hit rates are very comparable to his time with the Nats. You wrote about before he was DFA'd about how the Nationals were kind of trying to hold on to him, knowing that his spin rates were pretty good and hoping that a team would kind of potentially uh, look at that and deal for him later in the offseason or later in the season. Uh, And both spoke to another Jesse, Jesse Rogers at ESPN, saying he was blown away by all the data that they have, which uh, has obviously been picked up on by Nationals fans. It's obviously been interesting to watch him succeed after not doing particularly well with the Nationals this season, but how much of that do you think is just a change of scenery? And how much is a bit of an indictment on the Nationals front office that they kind of saw these traits, but couldn't get more consistent performance out of him? I did not pay you to ask me this, by the way. Let's just let that be known. Uh, I think anyone who listens to the podcast knows it's been like my pet project this year. Um, I think it's a mix of both. I think that coaching staff has to be put under the microscope for this. I think change of scenery is a real thing. And we've seen in the past that, you know, guys have similar, you know, pitch usages or similar somethings or mechanics, but they just find something with another team, a new a new voice, a new set of eyes. It's, you know, frankly, a team saying we want you. I think you go from being a middle reliever on a non-contending team that sort of moved you from the rotation and diminished your role year by year to a team in the hunt that's saying, we want you to start games for us. We want you to open, and then we want you to build your pitch count up. We want you to become basically a full-time starter. There could be just be a jolt of energy there that you're wanted. I think that's a, that's a big thing from a psyche standpoint. But yeah, I mean, before the Nationals dealt him, as you mentioned, I, I wrote that the reason why he was still in the mix with a 10 ERA was that because they thought he had marketable skills. They thought the spin rate on his fastball and curveball could be attractive to a team that, you know, is known for rebuilding pitchers and is known for re- reclaiming guys and, and taking that one unique skill or pitch and, and turning it into success. And they were hoping that there was a market for him trade-wise, that, that they trotted him out there and he had three good weeks or two good weeks or five good appearances. They could maybe start to field some offers. You can't do that with a guy with a 10 ERA. It's a lot harder to do. So what happened was ultimately it was untenable and they wanted to get someone else on, on the team and they DFA'd him and he got scooped up and he's been dominant. And did I foresee that? No. I thought a more progressive team could maybe better use his tools and his spin rates and the, and the gifts he has and make him serviceable and make him a functional part of a of a bullpen or a rotation, I did not foresee the numbers he's put together with the Orioles. But as you said, shortly after he got added, he had that interview with Jesse Rogers of ESPN where he said he was sort of blown away by the data and the video. And I think that becomes a, I think that does become an indictment of the Nationals. And frankly, I've written this in the past and I'll write it again. It's like, there are these people with the Nationals who do that work. There is a video team. There is an analytics staff. There are smart people in the building who know about the same tools the Orioles use or the same data, if not in the exact same way, 
in a way that should be conducive to better results in the majors. But from an organizational standpoint, there needs to be a top-down change in culture where those kind of ideas, that kind of, the, the, you know, that data, that video, the, the analysis, the use of rep soto or the use of track man or whatever it may be, has to be part of the conversation day to day. It can't just be, eh, that one guy knows it and that one player asked for it. And sure, you could do it. It has to be, this is a way in which we're going to evaluate players. And this is the way we're going to evaluate acquisitions. It's the way we're going to evaluate our own roster. It's the way we're going to evaluate our minor leaders. And until that happens, you're going to have a lot of cases with guys like Austin Both who go elsewhere and say, oh man, this team, like they, they showed me things I haven't seen before. Because Austin Both is interesting because not only was he on the Nationals in 2022, but he came through the system. So he's not necessarily conditioned to ask for data in the way where, let's say, Donovan Casey, who came from the Dodgers last year, and he got to the Nationals and he said, I, I need to see this and this and that in AAA, or I need a high velo machine, or I need a, a, a machine that you know does curveballs and has certain spin on its pitches for me to prepare for games. The guys who come through the national system, a team that's pretty it's been pretty old school top to bottom for since under Mike Grizzo, like they're not necessarily asking for these things. So then when they go to a new team like the Orioles and it's offered to them and they say, Look, we do it this way. We have you look at this number, we're gonna have you throw this many pitches at this you know, at this arm slot or whatever it may be. And that's just spitballing. Those aren't real examples. Like that makes a difference because that guy may have never been exposed to these sort of practices. And that's the root issue too, because now you have 19, 20, 21 year olds coming through the national system, recent draft picks, recent international signings, whoever it may be. And they're going to go through the same system that Austin both did with some small cosmetic changes, a bit of a culture change. But until that happens at the top, and until it really, really takes, you know, someone like Mike Rizzo or someone like Dave Martinez say, we're going to really change what we do around here. It's going to be the same results. And it's going to be more guys like this in the future, going to new places and saying they saw new things and maybe they improve their career. And uh, it's going to be more frustration because I, I get why fans are annoyed by it, but I think it's worth pointing out. Do you think that's something that the current regime will be open to? Like you say, Mike Rizzo is kind of an old school scouting first guy. Do you think that's something that they may kind of evaluate as we come into this offseason, particularly when a lot of the focus is going to be, like you say, on these young guys who have just been drafted, who they hope are going to be the next competitive team compared to when they were competing and it was just kind of reinforcements to an already competitive team. So yeah, do you think that's something that this current regime are going to come to this offseason to actually fully evaluate that? Or is that something that potentially from the very, very top if we have new ownership, which again, it's been, it's been an overarching theme of everything and uh, it's hard to get away from. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a good question. I think that we saw the start of it this past offseason when they reshaped the minor league system in terms of staff. They brought in David Longley from the Padres, who's director of technology and, and data in the minors. And that position did not exist before. Most organizations have five of those guys, if not more, 10, whatever. And now it's one with the Nationals that starts somewhere. They, they've committed a member of the R&D team, research development to player development only, which maybe was happening before, but now it's actually a name title. And those are small changes again, but it's not necessarily, you know, we're making this a huge part of our operation or making this a, a priority. And every time we evaluate a player, every time we go to coach, or every time we set a player plan, that's, that's what it has to be. And I think that at this point, when you have back to back to back losing seasons, last place seasons, since the World Series, I think it is time to think, what can we do better? You'd hope from the outside, from a fan's perspective, from an owner's perspective, that the front office is, is capable of that kind of introspection and change. Because when you lose three years in a row, you have to think it can't just be luck and it can't just be the players. It can't just be the bad breaks or whatever it may be or the circumstances of the injuries. It has to be something you're doing in the organization in order for these seasons to happen. And until that's actually looked at and you look in the mirror and you decide, what are we going to do better? or What are we going to change? It's going to just keep being the same results over and over now. So I understand the reset and the rebuild and needing to sort of go from the ground up again, but three straight losing seasons again to the tune of last place is the proof's there that something has to change. So do I think it's going to be more of a focus because of the young generation and the, and the change in direction? I don't know. 
I, I can only say that I think it should be more of a focus and that and that I think the, the front office, again, has to take a hard look at its process right now and, and decide what's working and what hasn't because it's a results business. Mike Rizzo says that all the time. And, and the results right now have not been good for a good while, ever since they won the World Series. So something has to something has to give there for sure. Yeah, and uh, I said it earlier, the more important thing for the Nationals than whether Juan Soto is on the roster or not is what happens this offseason. Like you say, they've, they've got to figure out player development, especially with the focus on younger players. They've got to figure out ownership. They've got to figure out what they're going to do kind of roster-wise this free agency again because they obviously didn't get it right this offseason with a lot of the one-year guys they brought in specifically to be traded and weren't traded. So it's going to be a, a big offseason kind of for the grander picture. That's all we have for you, Jesse. Uh, where can we find you on social media and everything? And have you got anything interesting that you can tease a little bit in the near future? Well, certainly, they're hoping to talk to us both soon. I haven't yet, but he comes back to the Nationals in September, and I think there's more to say there and more to unpack. So look forward to that, or don't, I guess, if it's, if it's not something you want to engage with anymore. And uh, hoping to go down and see James Wood and Yarlin Susana in Fredericksburg soon. So that's uh, that should be exciting and, um, and cool to see those guys. And as far as finding me, I'm on Twitter at Doherty underscore Jesse, and then WashingtonPost.com slash sports. Um, any Nationals coverage by Andrew Golden. Paris Luga, Chelsea James, or myself, and you know, hope you hope you guys can check it out. So appreciate having me on, man. Thanks again to Jesse for joining the podcast and giving some really in-depth thoughts on the Nationals and the direction that they could well be heading over the next few weeks, months, and years, especially with an off-season that appears critical in determining the foundation that this franchise rebuilds on. After all that's happened with the Nationals the last two weeks, they now sit at 43 and 85 four and a half games behind the Oakland Athletics, who have the second worst record in the majors, and who travelled to Nationals Park this week for a three-game series. After that, the Nationals start a 10-game road trip with a weekend series against the Mets in Queens. Not that the Nationals are in much danger of missing out on a top lottery selection this season, but if they continue the way they're heading, they'll almost certainly have it sewn up with just over a month's worth of games remaining. A lot of people expected them to be bad this season, but I'm not quite sure people expected them to be this bad and potentially on course for comfortably the worst record in the league. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. We hope to be back next week with an episode following the team series with the Mets. Then the podcast may go on a short break as I'm going to be moving. So I won't be recording again until I can get everything set up after the move. If all goes well, I should be back for a few episodes before the end of the season. But for now, we hope to see you next week.